Well, good morning. And welcome to Bridgewater. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt. and the joy of being the campus pastor here. If you're new with us, just as David said, I just want to say welcome uh, to you. So glad you're here this morning. Uh, and if you've missed any of the last couple of weeks and don't know where we're at, you've jumped into a really fun series uh, that has been very, very helpful, but might feel a little bit awkward for you this morning. That's okay. That's going to be a good conversation for all of us. If you have missed any of the last four weeks, uh, one of the things we've said coming into this series is that you have to listen to all of them in order. Uh, so if you haven't been able to do that, go to bridgewater.church slash messages. Uh, you can find the Halstead podcast on there or listen to any one of the other campuses because each of these weeks is built upon uh, the other one. And we also said that we want to provide additional resources for you. So for each of the weeks as we've gone through this series, uh, if you follow this link here, you can scan this QR code or go to bridgewater.church slash mirrors and you'll see the additional resources for each of these topics there uh, just to help this conversation go further because we can't answer all of the questions in one week or even one series. We just want to give you a grid for uh, answering your questions. So we're so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, for those of you who maybe haven't heard yet, um, we wanted to let you know this morning that next week is actually going to be Olivia and I's last week with you as a campus pastor. Uh, we've taken a job at a church down in Virginia. So just want to let you know. We're going to talk more about that next week, but just didn't want you to be surprised uh, that that news was coming. But for now, we're going to have a really fun conversation today. <clears throat> I've had several people ask me, hey, in your last month here, who, uh, who picked that you preach such hard topics? Uh, here's the truth. Yours truly wrote most of the series along with a couple other guys, uh, and we picked this back in October, having no idea that this was going to be my last month. So no one's to blame but me uh, for these topics, but I do think it is God-ordained that we get to have this conversation um, and that I think great fruit will come of it, both in the life of the church and the community, but hopefully in your lives as well personally. So I just want to remind us of a couple things. If you've missed any of the last weeks, I'm going to kind of give you some highlights that are essential to our conversation today. And these are the four commitments that I asked of you as we got into this series, that we would be learners, not judges. And I must say, I've been incredibly encouraged. Uh, the response to these conversations have been incredibly profitable. I can tell you're learning and listening. So just want to say thank you for that. To develop a burden for people who sin or struggle, struggle differently than we might to encourage our posture to be that of compassion for people rather than disdain, which is a lot of our conversation today, and ultimately to equip us to engage in others' lives, that we could be helpful when people ask us really, really important questions. Uh, so week one really kind of set the foundation for this series, and so I just want to remind you of the main points, because without these, the rest of this message could just sound like opinion. And so here's the, the three points from our first sermon, and they were this. As we're shaping uh, how we view the world and how we answer really important questions, there's three fundamental truths we talked about that shape how we answer those questions. And the first one is that God is the source of life, that he alone was the initiator, designer, and creator of us and everything we know and experience. Therefore, as the sole, sole source of life, he alone gets to call the shots on how we live and what we call or what he calls good and right for human flourishing. So he's the one who ultimately is uh, the, the decision maker on how we ought to operate as human beings. How we understand that to be revealed is through the Bible. So the Bible is authority uh, for life because it has been given by God, has been breathed by God. Therefore, it has the source of truth as God himself. And it is the guidepost and the fixed things for us to navigate life uh, through the lens of the scriptures. But ultimately, while we hold that truth, we cannot hold it as a weapon, but the light to our path that it was always intended to be. And that is grace and truth become our approach to life. That as we handle this truth, we would do it in such a way that sets people free. Because we know what Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. 
And that's what we hope this conversation does today. This conversation would set us free. A couple of things I want to remind you of is really just this question that we have to wrestle with. And this sermon's going to bump into that. Is, is your worldview filtered through the Bible or is your worldview filtering the Bible? What I mean is when we approach these conversations, are you uh, answering them because you have studied the scriptures, because you've asked what the designer says, and you're now informing your decisions based on the scriptures? Or are you taking your worldview and your opinions and your experience and deciding what you want to be true of the Bible or not? A follower of Jesus must submit their worldview and how they answer their questions to the authority of God's Word. And when those two collide, and we said this in week one, when culture and the Bible collide, or when my experiences in the Bible collide, we must return to the fixed points of God's word. God's word is the anchor point in which we make big decisions from. Okay, so that's kind of where we've been. Uh, if you missed them, I said, check them out. But that's uh, going to bring us back up to speed. Last week, we talked heavily about this idea of identity, specifically sexual identity, and the conversation around transgenderism and how we're supposed to approach that, if you missed that. We talked about this chart, basically, that explained how we got to where we got to as a culture, where this is now the conversation we're having. We're going to go a little bit further into that conversation, off course, a little bit from it, um, but talking specifically about sexuality this morning. Now, the moment I talk about sexuality, a lot of people get really uncomfortable in church um, because for many, many years, churches, by and large, I would say the last several generations, it's been a taboo conversation, right? You just don't talk about it. It's awkward when you talk about it from church. But I think it has given us uh, more damage to our understanding than we even realize because what has happened is the church has been, by and large, silent on this conversation. And we've raised generations that didn't know and don't know what it is that God's word actually says about sexuality. But the world has not been silent on this conversation. For, for many, many decades, the world has been talking. And so generations have been discipled and taught, not by the church on this conversation, but by the world. And so often as you, we have these conversations around what Christianity says about this, Here's what I think is the danger we've been facing, is that when we talk about these issues, what the Bible says is often assumed, not studied. Well, I think Jesus would say this, or I think God's word says this, okay, but do we know because we actually studied it, or as an assumption, and we can, listen, we can spin words to mean what we want them to mean, but when we read the scriptures in its plainness, what does it actually have to say about brokenness. That's what we're going to do today is not talk out of assumption or opinion. We're just going to spend a ton of time walking through some passages of God's word to see what the designer would say to us about this conversation. But here's what I need to say before we get into it. I have for as often as I've been on the stage, almost every week, tried to lay before you the reality that we are all broken. We are all affected by sin. Now, you might have used different words if you didn't have a church context, but none of us have escaped the reality of a broken life around us. We all experience it against us, and we all experience it internally. You, again, probably may have used different words. Scriptures would call that the brokenness that sin has done to us. It has marred God's perfect creation. There is no question about that. What I've also laid before you almost every single week is that no amount of good work or right behavior is going to undo or fix that brokenness. It is only the grace and forgiveness of Jesus provided for us at the cross that will give us the freedom necessary to leave behind what is broken and be restored and redeemed by God's transforming love. This conversation is no different than that today. Which means, as we approach this, the question isn't, is your brokenness worse than mine, or is your brokenness different than mine? That's not the question, because we're all broken. 
The question is, can I identify my brokenness and can I see my need for grace? Am I willing to look myself in the mirror, not have to put makeup on to hide the brokenness I feel, but just be honest with the Lord and say, God, here's where I'm broken and I need grace. Now, why is this important? Because in our culture, we're afraid to admit we're broken in these areas. We're now celebrating what God has said is not to be celebrated. We're celebrating what is broken. And when that is true, we are unwilling to repent because we don't think it's wrong. And if there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness, there is no grace. We must acknowledge our brokenness to be able to find the freedom that God has for us. Okay? Here's what we're going to do. Jump into God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me this morning. I said we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 through this whole series. And so we're going to be there. If you don't have your Bibles, we'd love to give you one for free. Back out at the Welcome Center found will be on the screen here behind me. We're just going to kind of lay before you five truths uh, that should guide and direct how we view the conversation of biblical sexuality. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Genesis chapter 1, 27, 28, we see God give this commission from uh, himself to mankind to fill the earth, to subdue it, uh, to control, to, to tame it, really to be uh, co-creators with him in an exclusive position that he gave to mankind. But within that, he also gave them this commission to be fruitful and increase, which is this idea of procreation, that God in the very beginning when life was perfect, pre-sin, established uh, sex really as a gift from him, which is our first point this morning, that sex is a gift from God. And that seems like a, a simple statement, but I think it needs to be said. Because what's happened is we've approached this conversation, the world has tried to, to really take sexuality and sex and make it something separate from God, that God is really against sex. That God, that, that's just not true. When God created a perfect world, he created sex and he gave it to us as a gift for pleasure, for enjoyment, for unity. There are so many good things in which he designed it. And if we are convinced that God is against sex, we'll go to all these other places to try to find satisfaction in this thing where God has already given it to us in the gift of sexuality within his design. And yet, we so often think that God is against us here. We must see he is pro us. And so one of the purposes, obviously, is procreation. Um, that is a natural byproduct of sex. But it's not the only thing. And I would argue it's probably not even the most important aspect in which God designed it. Genesis chapter 2, the next chapter over, uh, it kind of lays out more in detail what we read in chapter 1. So let's read that together, starting in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whenever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock. Um, yeah, sorry. To all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. When God created mankind, he created uh, the union of marriage, and he created sex to be a part of that. And you see this phrase here in verse 24 that said, they become one flesh. That there was this unifying factor where sexuality wasn't just a physical act. It was a spiritual and emotional act of unity that God gave to create a bond between a husband and wife that was to be a foundational piece of their relationship of being fully known. Right? You see this in verse 25 here, that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Naked and felt no shame. They were fully known, which is the deepest desire in the human heart to be fully known and fully loved. They were fully known, fully loved, and they felt no shame. That was God's idea for us. And in fact, that was God's parameter. So not only is sex is a gift from God, that what we see there in Genesis, we see Jesus affirm this later, is the parameters determined by the designer. That when God gave sexuality and sex, he said, here is the boundaries in which this is experienced and enjoyed to its fullness. One man, one woman within the context of, of marriage. That is the biblical Christian ethic. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what scriptures teach for us to adhere to. And you say, well, that's Old Testament. Listen, we read it last week. Jesus affirmed this as well when he quoted Genesis chapter 2 by saying, one man, one woman become united into one flesh, one man, one woman within the context of marriage. That is the biblical sexual ethic laid before us plainly within scriptures. That that is how it is to be experienced. Now, does that mean uh, there's time to time that we have desires outside of those parameters? Well, of course we have desires outside of those parameters because we're broken people affected by sin. What I would argue to all of us is maybe broken or sexuality isn't your primary, primary struggle in life, but it has been affected by sin to some degree. It has affected all of us. We all have desires at one point, whether we are following them or not, to step outside of those bounds. It is the same temptation that gave that Satan gave Adam and Eve. Did God really say those are the boundaries or is he holding out on you? That phrase is what gets all of us into trouble. Is that really the limits in which God said yes? Well, why, why do we bump against the parameters that God has given us so often, both in our desires and our actions? C.S. Lewis is, quoting, or is talking about this. I want to read this quote to you. He's really talking about how we view morality or how we view uh, these boundaries. I think this is a very helpful quote. There's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. I am afraid that is the sort of idea that the word morality raises in a good many people's mind. Something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time. In reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. That is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you are being taught how to use any machine, the instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that, because of course there are sort, all sorts of things that all look, or that look all right and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine, but do not really work. What is he saying? 
One, I think the first piece is incredibly important, that we think God is against us having a good time. We think God is against our joy and is one of the greatest lies that we have believed. Uh, remember that I quoted John 10.10 10 last week, for the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Another translation would say, have it to the full. That God's desires for us is to enjoy the good creation that he has given us, not to stop us from enjoying what he's given us. But when we're trying to follow the natural inclination, as he's saying here, it will lead us outside of what God has called good and right. And it is not helpful. It is, in fact, harmful. If I could summarize his quote, I would say what I said in week one. When God tells you no, it's for your good. So when God says no uh, to anything outside of his design, it's not because he's against you. It's in fact because he's for you. And he knows that when you use things out of their design, it will cause harm not only to yourself, but to those around you and ultimately rob you of what you've been chasing in the first place. And so here is uh, the statement that I think it kind of summarizes this whole conversation. Any sexual activity outside of God's parameter is sin. That is probably the most unpopular thing I could say in 2023, and yet it is truth. And here's what I want to say to us this morning. As we approach this conversation around sexuality, uh, our minds can easily run to what is popular in the news in regards to homosexual activity. But listen, God is incredibly clear, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, anything outside of one man, one woman in the context of marriage is outside of his good and right design and is sin. It's wrong. We know it's wrong because God's word plainly tells us that that is the case. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers. Let me pause right there real quick. That's us. That's us. We are not the righteous, but the lawbreakers. We are rebels. We are ungodly. We are sinful. We are unholy apart from Jesus. In this conversation, it's very easy to be looking out at somebody else who struggles differently than us. But when every passage talks about this, we need to see it in humility through the mirror of God's word, looking back on our own life, that we are the ones who are broken, even if it's different than other people. For murderers, verse 10, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So any sex outside of God's parameters is sin, be it premarital, be it extramarital, be it pornographic, be it fantasies, be it sexual, homosexual activity. God has said no. And when God said no, well, it's for your good. It is not to be celebrated. It is to be repented of, brought to the feet of Jesus, to be forgiven, restored, and ultimately redeemed. Now hear me. In this conversation, as I lay before you the truth of God's word, I do not want you to miss the fact that if you are here today, and I'm assuming in a community this size, there may be individuals, either privately or publicly, who identify with same-sex attraction, identify perhaps even as part of the LGBTQ community. I want you to know we love you. We care for you. We're glad you're here. God loves you. God cares for you. God is glad you're here. And I hope you know that is true. I hope you feel that is true. What I also hope you feel is true is that I, because I love you, because I care about you, because God loves you, he doesn't want to leave us where he found us. That he calls us out of the brokenness we experience into a life of wholeness with him. 
So here's what I would say. I would quote a quote I gave you back uh, in the beginning of week one because I think it clearly explains what I'm trying to say to you. If a pastor really loves you, he will not affirm what Scripture teaches, will not prosper you, but harm you. Maybe you're here and it's heterosexual sin that you're wrestling with. I cannot affirm that for you, though it feels right to your flesh. I cannot affirm it because I know what Scripture clearly teaches, that it will not prosper you, but harm you. And the same would be true with homosexual activity and desires. That God has said no because he is for us. And so we love you and we're glad you're here. We want to offer the help that Jesus has offered all of us regardless of what it is that we came up here broken and, and messed up with, God has offered hope for all of us. Here's one of the distinctions I, I think is important for all of us, specifically if you're wrestling with sexual activity or sexual immorality or any of that, is that you, you see the difference between the desires that exist in us and the life we live. See, God instructions for us differentiate between action and attraction. Because we have all been affected by sin, because we have all been impacted by it, we have desires in us that are wrong, right? You hear people say all the time against Christianity in this conversation, well, if God didn't want me to be gay, why did he make me this way? Here's the reality. God did not make any of us with brokenness. Sin did that to us. And because of that, it affected our desires and our wants. And so there are some of us who have a natural inclination to a certain type of sin. Others have a natural inclination to a certain, a, a different type of sin, right? Maybe you are naturally inclined to anger. It is just in your blood. It is part of uh, what you've wrestled with your whole life. Would it be loving and kind for me to say, that's fine. You were born with that desire. Just express it. No, why not? Because it would be harmful to you. It would be harmful to those you love. And ultimately, it would be an offense against God. Maybe you're naturally inclined to greed as you're wrestling with this desire for greed and more. Would it be loving and good for me to say, that's fine, just just be greedy because you're born that way? No, why not? Because it'd be harmful to you, harmful to those you love, and ultimately an offense against God and not leading you to the life you want. Sexuality is not a different conversation. Are some of us naturally bent towards a heterosexual sin? Sure, but it doesn't mean it's good for us to chase. Are some of us bent towards same-sex attraction or homosexual sin? Sure, but it doesn't mean it's good and right for us to chase. Here's why this is important. Jesus was tempted in every way we were, yet was without sin. If you're here and you wrestle with same-sex attraction, it doesn't mean you're condemned forever. It means that you might, for the remainder of your life, have to choose to set aside those desires and wants if you're going to follow Jesus, that the grace of Jesus is enough for you to forgive you, redeem you, and restore you, and sustain you, even if those desires remain in your life for the remainder of your life. And here's our final piece for us this morning. It's just that. God's grace is for all brokenness, including every form of sexual brokenness. It's not like God is surprised. Like, can we just be honest? God isn't shocked at the brokenness in our life because he knows what is the reality of sin. God is not surprised by your wrestles. And he certainly isn't scared of it. He's not worried that he can't restore you. Listen, that's why Jesus went to the cross. Because he knew what damage it would do to his creation. And so God sent Jesus to buy us back from that. Listen to how Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, 
nor, excuse me, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Let me pause right there. Do you see that list? Who did he encompass in that list? Thieves, greedy people, slander, sexually immoral, men who have sex with men. They're all on the same level of brokenness. Now, do some have greater impacts in the natural world? Yeah, of, of course some of them do. But my sin is not more in need of grace than your sin. And your sin is not more in need of grace than my sin. We are equally in need of God's grace to redeem us. And that's where he goes in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what you were, but that's not who you are. I feel like on behalf of Christianity and the Bible, I need to apologize to those of you who wrestle and have wrestled secretly or publicly with same-sex attraction or, or uh, heterosexual sin, that you have been shamed, you've been convinced you're a second-class citizen by how the church has treated you. It's just not true. It's not fair, and I'm sorry. Here's why I think we got there. Because as Christians, we've forgotten how broken we are. As Christians, we've forgotten to look in the mirror and see the damage of our own sin, our own depravity, our own need for grace, that it's caused us to look down on other people who are broken just like us. Now, it doesn't mean any of us give anybody a free pass on these choices. It means out of love and grace and compassion, fully aware of our own brokenness, we help each other find Jesus and freedom together, never shaming, always pointing to the grace and restoration of Jesus. What I want to do for us this morning is I want to just kind of read a passage of scripture to you um, that I hope encourages you, helps you, and ultimately gives you a pathway to freedom. If you want to write this uh, reference down, it's Romans chapter 8. I'd encourage you to spend some time this week just reading through Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT this morning, um, and I think it offers for us the exact pathway that I am describing of restoration. Verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Let me pause right there. So much of the conversation around sexual sin is full of shame, secrets, and quietness, and, and really private suffering. That we've just tried to hide it because we've seen how the church has reacted. Listen to Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That God is not surprised, and God wants to redeem you and restore you, not condemn you. Could you hear that truth this morning? And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature, meaning no amount of trying hard to beat sin is ever going to work. We don't have it in us apart from the grace of Jesus. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the body, bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your body leads to life and peace. That's what I said in John 10.10, 10, right? 
The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life abundant. Sin will tempt us and try to convince us that life and peace, what our hearts ultimately want, is found out of God's good and right design. God has time and time again said, the life you want is within my design. It is where life and peace are found. Verse 7. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But... You are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Therefore, this is, this is verse 12. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Friends, do you hear the good news of that? That thing that has chased you for your entire life, you are under no obligation to give in to those desires. You, if you have given your life to Jesus, have the power to say no to what you do not ultimately want and to say yes to the life in Jesus that you ultimately want because his spirit has given you the power to do so. And here's what this means for us. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the only option we have is to submit and to surrender our broken desires to God and obey him. That's it. Not convince other people that it's okay. Not try to manipulate God's word that it's okay. It is to submit and to surrender and find life and life abundant. If you're here and you're not a follower of God, what I hope you hear this morning is not that you need to clean yourself up or stop doing these things for God to rescue you. That, that's not going to work. Your greatest need is to not be straight. Your greatest need is to be saved. God will sort out that as he helps restore and redeem what is broken inside of all of us. God wants that for you, and you can have it. But I don't want to give this up. I know. I know the desire to hold on to what is familiar, what you have identified with. But if you're honest with yourself, what you want really is peace. What you want really is happiness and joy and contentment and being comfortable as who God made you to be. And that's the offer of Jesus. If you're here today and you're a believer and you wrestle with heterosexual or homosexual sin, I, I want to invite you into a space with the Lord as we sing this song in a few minutes to just surrender, to give it over to God, to say, God, would you take these desires? And I said it earlier, I'm going to say it again. There is a reality because of the brokenness we live in that you may wrestle with same-sex attraction or heterosexual lust for the rest of your life. It might be there, but you don't have to give in to it. Why? Because the Spirit has given us power over it. And then we get to rejoice with the Lord in heaven that that is gone forever when we get there. When all things are made new and we get to experience the full life that God really has for us. Maybe you're here today and um, this conversation doesn't relate to you. It's not necessarily your primary struggle in life. But here's what I know to be true. There's people around you who it is their primary struggle. Church, could we posture ourselves in such a way that we never bring condemnation, but we bring truth that sets people free with the grace that encourages them to embrace that truth? Could we embody what Paul wrote to us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2? That we would devote ourselves to prayer, that we would be being watchful and thankful, that you would pray for us, being ministers of the gospel, that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Would you pray that the church continues to stand with truth because the truth 
matters. Verse five, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Church, could we be a beacon to our community as we stand with truth? Because here's what I know to be the reality of all sin. When we chase it, and we get the momentary pleasure of whatever it might be, be it a fit of rage or be it a sexual sin, we're always disappointed. We're always let down. It never met the desire of our heart. There's coming a day for many individuals who have chosen a life following these desires that they will one day wake up and go, wow, this isn't what I thought it was. What they will need is a place to be safe, to be loved, and to be reminded of the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Could that be us? And could that be you as you navigate these conversations? Would people be so impacted by the love that you show them that they're willing to hear the truth that you have to share with them? And ultimately, would we be a free people as God desires us to be? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your good design and and the gifts in which you've given us. God, I know that We don't see the goodness of it sometimes. I don't see the goodness of it sometimes. If I did, I would never choose sin, and yet, God, I do. And I don't want to, but I feel this wrestle in me, and I know many other people do. God, would you give us the strength necessary through your spirit to fight? God, would you give us the the vision for our life free of sin and the goodness that it is? God, I pray for anyone here who's been wrestling privately or perhaps even publicly with these desires, God, that they would feel your grace, they would feel your compassion, and they would feel your hand guiding them towards the cross. That we would, in this moment, God, hand it over to you, find repentance and forgiveness and the strength to carry on. If you're here today and and you would like to talk to anybody about a wrestle you're having, Um, We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you, give you some resources. You can either find me or fill out a communication card and we'll be in touch. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you provide a way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.